Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There's a history here. It's just laden with history and with the Republican Party that coming out of World War II with Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan, where uh, there, there was just a raging debate. I have the clearest memories of the debates over this in the 60s when I was a kid, and it was heated within Republican politics. Nothing's changed here except we have a president who's grossly, un, you know, without any criticism of the president, to be kind, he's unpredictable. And we just simply don't, won't, don't know what he'll do with the veto-proof vote that we just saw. Let's bring in Gabriella Santos, shall we? J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Global Market Strategist. Gabriella, two widely held assumptions I've heard in the last couple of days from market participants. One, that the president needs a phase one trade deal before the elections in 2020. And two, it's unlikely that the president will break with Republican senators. Can you reconcile those two things? So I think, I mean, for for when we're writing our 2020 outlook, which is the season, tis the season, um, we have to have some sort of assumption about what happens with trade here. It, it really underpins the view for the economy and for asset markets around the world. So really, our belief is that there is enough support both from the U.S. side and the China side to find some sort of compromise to arrive at a trade truce. The question is how much the symbolism around the passing of this bill will be enough to deter China's, frankly, own interest in arriving at a truce. I think that's yet to be seen, frankly. So we're not changing our assumption at this point. You're changing your assumption? We are not. You're not changing your assumption. Do you think that the risk of escalating Hong Kong uh, distress and the U.S. response is inappropriately priced right now in markets? So I think the market is starting to pay more attention to this, right? And and namely over the past 10 days or so, we've started um, to see a little bit more question marks around truly what kind of phase one deal we're looking at here. Um, but I think one important point here is this is still a symbolic mass, uh, uh, measure, right? And at this point, China has not taken a, a military step or a step that would actually precipitate a strong response in practice from the U.S. So they have haven't crossed that line yet, uh, which I think is the most important thing to look at. Gabby, we could game out the politics for the rest of this program. Let's not do that. Let's talk about the markets. There's a few things happening that I think are really interesting. The curve's flattening again, six Mm -hmm. straight days of it. One, two, the data relative to expectations is coming in negatively again. The city surprise index is now back in negative territory. And I would say three, high yield spreads are back out to around about 400 basis points. Put all of that together and the equity market is still near all time highs and barely responding to the news and the price action elsewhere. Why? Interesting thing, though, about the equity market is if we look beneath the surface for the past 10 days or so, you have seen the defensives and kind of, shall we say, secular tech uh, start to lead again. So there has been a little bit of a pause in the cyclical trade beneath the surface in equities as well. And I think it's around this idea that, all right, the market has gotten excited about stability and global growth, about a trade truce, but we haven't had new information to confirm that for 10 days now. So the burden is here in the pudding, shall we say? And so we need new information to see that uh, cyclical trade back on. Value is finally perking. We spoke with David Harrow yesterday, an arch value investor internationally. How do you find value sectors, value stock selection internationally? Mm. Just buy banks? Is that the boring way? No. 
No. Worst value internationally. <laughs> Con- concrete companies in Thailand. See how she I said no? We, I wish that we had that a camera was, to that, show that the was face the, that was the, the, the diplomatic no. way of shutting Tom Keen down. That Just, was no. 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 Not that I would ever hear that at home. <laughs> So it's new. I got a little David excited. David Harrow about never it. said to me new. <laughs> yeah, Sorry but no. <laughs> I, I said it that way just because it, it brought to mind um, Get yourself on. The, the, more recent, going, the more recent discussion around European banks and Japanese banks in particular. Uh, yeah, but the tradition is concrete <laughs> companies in Thailand. You know, and also simple. not concrete. Buy, buy telephonists to Mexico, okay? You know, give me 80% no. exposure. No. Oh, now you got it. Great. But the bottom line is I need to discover value internationally. How do you find that? So I think, honestly, it's it's less of an easy call, value versus growth internationally, exactly because we're not of the belief that uh, banks or industrials or materials are really the trade here for the next year or two, right? I think if we look at international, it's still more of a growth story. It's still more of a consumer story. It's still more of a tech story. But there is value in international versus the U.S., I think that's the underlying message, but it's not necessarily in your typical value stocks. Gabby, thank you. You can run now. Gabby, I, I think I should leave now. <laughs> JP Morgan Asset no. Management, Global Market Strategist. Always great to see you, Gabby. John, what's so great about public service within central banking in Europe, like what is Mario Draghi going to do? How will he convey message? Is everyone finds a unique way to move forward and to convey the message. And that happened again this morning. And what they can say once they've left the central bank is very different to what they could say when they were at the central bank. That is no different to the former New York Fed president, Bill Dudley, now Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and writing the following this morning. On the Bloomberg terminal, the Federal Reserve, in its most recent semi-annual report about risk to financial stability, concluded that there are no serious immediate threats. So does this mean we should relax? I definitely don't think so. Take a listen to what Bill had to say a little bit earlier on. Financial market valuations, uh, the Fed concluded, are not high uh, relative to bond yields. But bond yields are extraordinarily low. So I think there's a risk that if uh, bond yields rise, which seems likely to me, given the large budget deficits that we see as far as the eye can see, that's going to put uh, financial market asset valuations under pressure. And second, they highlight the buildup of corporate uh, debt. Uh, Corporate debt has increased because businesses are deciding to uh, borrow to buy back shares because that boosts their share price. All well and good as long as we're in an economic expansion. But next time we have a recession, that big load of corporate debt that we built up is going to be problematic because a lot of that's in the triple B sector. And some of that triple B debt's going to become junk debt and people are not going to be able to hold that debt. They're going to have to sell it. And that's going to put a lot of upward pressure on uh, credit spreads at that time. This is a superb essay by Bill Dudley and it really harkens back to the time where he wrote Herd on people like Ed McKelvey, Jan Hatzius, Jack Yundall and others uh, at, at Goldman Sachs and all centering John back to the fiscal space. He mentions at the bottom of the essay, Ed McKelvey and you know, to the tone, there's not a moment to lose in identifying the fiscal dynamics. All these different financial stability risks that are percolating, but at the epicenter of it all, the risk that Treasury yields rise and start to fuel some of these problems. But I think we've got to talk about the premise of the piece. 
budget deficits pushing treasury yields higher. So far, Lisa, no evidence of that in the United States. True, although you are seeing foreign investors pull back. Actually, if you look at the September data uh, from the Treasury Department just released earlier this week, you could see that uh, foreign investors reduced their holdings of U.S. Treasuries by the most in two years in September. And you saw that uh, foreigners came in and bid on the least uh, amount of the U.S. Treasury auctions in September since the financial crisis. So this does raise a question. Are there enough domestic buyers to take in and fill in that extra demand? I think you've just got to believe, and I really struggle with this belief, you have have to believe that in the next downturn, people don't buy treasuries. In the next downturn, yields don't go lower, they go higher. I struggle with that. I really struggle with that. You're not alone, but the question is, if you do have central banks globally pulling back from their stimulus programs, or frankly running out of ammunition when it comes to suppressing bond yields, could there be a natural repricing globally in sovereign risk? What's interesting is the reaction function is a smooth curve and then it's not. And when rates rise, there's always these kink effects, and that's really what Dudley was was going to is, okay, rates can rise a little bit, but there's a tip point. And John, I would suggest we don't know where that, where where is higher rates actually higher rates? That's a huge mystery given the negative rate regime in the last 10 years. Well, if you talk with Ira Jersey, he says that uh, 2.5% on the 10 years is sort of the tipping point for U.S. stocks. And I think that's sort of one measure people are looking at. At what point does that impede in stock valuations? But I think that, John, you raise a really good point, which is what's going to what's gonna kick us into this higher yield regime? We have not seen it, despite all the warnings over the past 10 years. If the Fed's successful generating inflation, and once again, I think many people would question their ability to do that as well. It won't be the Fed, though. It'll be a fiscal stimulus. It'll be the budget expansion, which is the reason why Dudley is, is honing in on that. Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about a broader argument that I've heard many times over the last couple of years as well. Ray Dalio's brought this up a few times too. In the next downturn, the US dollar, does it play that traditional role? Does it have those risk characteristics, those characteristics of risk aversion, those traits that you buy the dollar and dollar denominated assets at times of stress? Will it continue to have those traits? I think many people believe it will, but just a small subsection of market participants starting to question that view over the last few years. Yeah, and, and, and part of that is what we, you know, when we bundle all together and go trade weighted and to the president saying the dollar is stronger, well, on a, on a linear or frankly, on a historic basis, no, it's not all that stronger. We're not out to Plaza Hotel, you know, Plaza Accord points or that. And the idea of forcing the dollar weaker is buttressed up against a huge wall of people that want to participate by owning. Yeah. You know, flows, this is Bob Cinch 101, flows matter. I don't buy that you're going to see people wholesale abandon the dollar. I don't buy that. But I do buy that we could enter a regime where yields rise uh, and that could disrupt market appetite for uh, risk. Bill Dudley, much talked about peace once again this morning. Add on the Bloomberg Terminal and on the Bloomberg website. Two risks to stability build amid short-term calm by the former New York president on Bloomberg Opinion. The U.S. Senate unanimously passing a bill supporting the Hong Kong protesters. The Chinese warning of retaliation and the president of the United States arguably stuck now between breaking with Republican senators or risking a phase one trade deal. I want to bring in Todd Mariano, Eurasia Group U.S. director, to help us understand this a little bit more. He calls in. Todd, great to have you with us. Help us understand the president's next move after this bill passes the Senate. 
Good morning, John. Great to be with uh, both you and Tom. Yeah, I, I think, like you said, the, the clear risk to Trump here is the phase one trade deal, which is not only in his interest, but also certainly in, in China's interest. And I think you see the leadership of both countries working to try and insulate those those talks, certainly from the congressional reaction to uh, Hong Kong. I think this is probably a situation where uh, you have such an overwhelming majority in Congress supporting this bill that the the president likely has to uh, swallow it and try to manage the fallout with phase one. One thing I think that's working in his favor there is that it's it's certainly a de minimis bill in terms of what Congress could actually do in Hong Kong. And uh, that's a risk for the future, not here. I think the president can probably manage it to keep trade talks moving forward. Todd, just help me understand the process down in Washington at the moment. A different kind of bill passed the the bill. So now this bill needs to go to the House and then ultimately ends up on the president's desk. Is it veto-proof? That's correct. They do have a couple things, I believe, to work out in conference. Uh, in order to have a a single bill that goes to the president's desk. I believe there is likely a a veto-proof majority for uh, for that bill. And, you know, if if Trump were to uh, send it back to veto it, and then that requires another vote to be taken in Congress, he can use that to say to Xi Jinping and to China, uh, this is not me, this is the Congress. That's something many presidents have said to foreign leaders uh, before. China's reaction, certainly publicly, will be uh, swift and uh, and harsh. You saw that even just when the House passed their version of the bill. Uh, but again, that's not an unusual uh, diplomatic circumstance. I, right. I think that um, you know once that initial reaction has washed through, you can likely keep trade talks um, moving forward. That would probably not be the case with a with a more severe bill. So, given the fact that this is largely symbolic. Is there any market uh, feedback loop that people should be pricing in here from the bill that's just uh, passed in the Senate? Not directly. I think I think the the signal here is certainly that this is symbolic, but it's also representative of where the debate is going in Washington. And we've seen Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, as kind of guardians of a more traditional American foreign policy, and forced by events on the ground to uh, respond to many different things from, you know, from Syria to Russia uh, and now to Hong Kong. The independent variable here is clearly where the protests go and whether it's able to be handled by police there or whether you eventually have a Beijing military response, which I assume would uh, necessitate a a much, uh, you know, harsher response from Congress. So it's, it's symbolic in and of itself. It's yeah. not symbolic in terms of where the debate's going. Okay, I get the symbolism, and I tried to read the fine print just within the general media analysis of it, and and I still don't understand where there's any power other than verbal. To be clear, the legislative branch of the United States has no quote-unquote power here? Yeah, it, they do have power in, in terms of repealing what gives Hong Kong special status in uh, in U.S. law. That's the big bet that Congress has. That's not involved uh, in, in this bill. From China's perspective, Hong Kong is of such strategic national importance yeah. that any, I, I think, involvement of Congress 
uh, you know, necessitate well, some sort of uh, some sort of reprisal. To be clear here, is there any parsing between Democrats and Republicans? I mean, is is unanimous or near unanimous what we're talking about here? There's yeah, there's there's very this is a this is a very bipartisan issue for sure. And uh, yeah. but it's also bipartisan because Congress is reacting to events. They're not being proactive and trying to get in front of you know where the protests go, that's where you're going to find Republicans dropping off to support the president's uh, ability to make foreign policy and certainly to uh, to continue his talks with China. That That's sort of been at the core of what McConnell, uh, Majority Leader McConnell has said in the Senate. So, you know, I, I think that, that Congress is, is reacting to things here. Todd, at the, uh, at the epicenter of all of this seems to be questioning how much autonomy Hong Kong actually has. When China comes out and says, stay out of our internal issues, doesn't that undermine their position on the international stage? It does in the sense that what was promised in 1997 was one country, two systems for, you know, for 50 years. Um, it does not undermine their position in that it's, it's widely understood that, you know, at, at the end of those 50 years, Hong Kong reverts to uh, to direct Chinese control. And, you know, it's no secret why this is happening now, why this has built up for for years and years in Hong Kong. I think what probably would undermine uh, the Chinese position more would have been a very heavy-handed and early crackdown on the protests. And the the fact that China has not done that, I think, is a a testament to the fact that uh, they they realize they've got one arm behind their backs so far here. Tom Mariano, thank you so much with Eurasia Group uh, this morning. Very quietly, a number of days ago, in the right-hand column of the FT op-ed, was Megan Green writing really, really smartly on fiscal, writing on debt, in writing on the emotion and politics around it. We're thrilled that she could join us now uh, holding court at the Kennedy School. She's got one of those old wooden desks at the Kennedy School where she waxes philosophical. Megan, wonderful to have you with us. Congratulations on driving forward the conversation on fiscal stimulus. All it comes down to is a will. Where is the will to get away from a historic austerity? So in the next year or so, I don't think there's any will at all um, outside of China where we might get more fiscal stimulus. But amongst developed economies, uh, I think there's very little chance we'll have anything in the U.S. um, going into an election year. We might get some fiscal stimulus after the election, but that would very much depend on how the election plays out and and whether we have a divided government or not. If there's gridlock, nothing will happen. The Germans, of course, have just passed another balanced budget for 2020. Um, they've just skated past recession. So now any pressure on the German government to provide fiscal stimulus, uh, in their view, is gone. And in, in any case, uh, they were happy to withstand it as long as unemployment remains low in Germany, which it really does. Um, so Europe's unlikely to really have a shift towards fiscal stimulus either. You might get a little out of the UK, um, no matter who wins the election, but that's hardly a, a game changer on the global stage. So if if central bankers have been going around at all these big conferences saying, what we really need is fiscal stimulus. That leaves me worried because I just don't see it happening. And no one's really coming up with a plan B. It, it would be the best option, but 
I wonder what second best possible options are. So if we don't get fiscal stimulus and if we continue with this on again, off again trade discussion uh, between the U.S. and China, we're seeing U- U.S. economic surprise indexes turn negative for the first time since the beginning of September. Do you think that the consensus narrative of reflation of positive growth next year in the U.S. is wrong? So I don't think it's wrong. I think, you know, I think we'll still grow next year. I just think it could continue to be a slowdown um, in developed countries. I think global growth will look a little bit better next year, actually, under your scenario, just because the emerging markets uh, should be squeezed less than they were this year. Um, But for, you know, the big economies in developed markets, I think we'll continue to grow. We'll just continue to converge with potential growth, which is lower than where we are now. Um, It doesn't mean we'll go into recession, though, because central banks, I think, will remain accommodative. Do you think that the market has a good chance of going into recession if there is no trade deal and the tariffs go into effect in December that President Trump has promised? So I think um, that would further slow growth. I don't think that alone would push us into recession. Um, It's not the tariffs so much, I think, that are so pernicious um, about this trade issue. It's more the uncertainty that the threat of tariffs causes and that um, that pushes firms to not really know what world order we're living in right now. So if we were to move immediately to a protectionist world order, Mm -hmm. companies would figure out how to play in that game. Um, Or if we were to continue with the liberal world order, companies would know how to play in that game. It's this in-between limbo that's so pernicious. And so whether we get a trade deal or not, actually, I don't think it's going to be a substantive one that will fundamentally resolve this conflict. And so that uncertainty is going to exist either way. Megan, thank you so much. Too short a visit. Thanks, Megan. uh, And again, with an important essay in the FT the other day on fiscal will, I love what she says about hope. Folks, here's what you do. Stack up all the books from the financial crisis and run them up Madison Avenue and you go into Bronx and you just keep going, Paul. (laughs) You take all those books and they stretch from here to Bedford, New York, somewhere up there, the barn, you know, the the Bedford Post-In and all that. And there's like four books that matter. One of them is Dan Elpert, The Age of Oversupply. We heard Gary Schilling just talking about that as well. Incredibly prescient book. Uh, right now, uh, Dan Alpert joins us now. We're thrilled he could be with us today. Author, we're going to get to his wonderful uh, series here in a moment. If you rewrote The Age of Oversupply 10 years on, how would it be different now versus when you wrote it? Well, I think I would put a lot more emphasis on uh, what was going on in, ter- in terms of trade. I mean, I think, uh, as it turned out, the trade imbalance re- reemerged. In, you know, quite quite strongly after the recovery got underway, we when I wrote the book, um, you were seeing some erosion in that imbalance, simply because demand in the U.S. Yeah. Had, had declined. So, uh, what what came back, you know, certainly over the last few years was was considerably. Uh, more more in excess of what I expected, and I think yeah. it's going to continue on. For we decades. all learned in school that age uh, that supply clears. If there is an age of oversupply, it clears. One hundred percent of this audience knows that ain't happening. Why? Yeah, that that that's exactly you, you. You hit the nail on the head. Uh, the 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 notion in conventional economics is that the price mechanism is going to clear supply. And unfortunately, what you have today is a stall in that effect. You don't have the price mechanism uh, actually forcing uh, supply 
to, to, to clear. Um, and th- this is going to go on for a long period of time because the mechanism yeah. that we've chosen to combat it is cheap money, uh, which is causing asset inflation, uh, which is you know, really making it very, very difficult uh, for, uh, for, for the price system to clear the excess supply. I tweeted out this weekend as it broke the Cornell CPA U.S. private sector job quality index. All you got to know, folks, with Dan Elpert's leadership, a whole bunch of people got together, smart academics, and looked away from the aggregation of all our statistics to come up with something that actually touches on the inequalities of America. I was tearing up. It was so good page to page. <laughs> My up. daughter thought it was because I booked frozen tickets. Yeah, of course. And it wasn't frozen tickets. It was Dan's thing. The chart you have on page eight in your study that, that shows the haves are more heavier and the have-nots are just not getting it done. We know that. So what's new within your wonderful series? Well, I think the, the series itself divides uh, jobs into two categories. One are low-wage, low-hour jobs, and the other are high-wage, high-hour jobs. And it does that simply by striking a mean weekly wage between the two sets. Um, but and, and clearly, we've become far more dependent in this country on low-wage, low-hour jobs, which, you know, hearkening back to uh, what Gary Schilling said before the break, is the reason that we have inadequate uh, growth in aggregate demand. So, uh, when you, but when you go under the hood and you actually look at that division, what, what you see is that the growth in weekly income on an inflation-adjusted basis for the high-wage and high-hour categories has been far greater than it, has, than it was historically. Around 2004, it really started to diverge, leaving the low-wage, low-hour workers in the dust. Now, the, this, this, this series is about jobs, not workers, and I think it's really important to focus on that fact. This, um, this is about uh, particularly production and non-supervisory jobs, which is 82.5% of, of uh, total jobs in the private sector. When you analyze that, that, that subgroup, you not only notice that wages have diverged, uh, weekly, weekly incomes rather have diverged, but you also notice that the low-wage categories have lost an hour of work. And those, those people in that category, which is far more numerate now than it was before, are working less than 30 hours a week. So, Dan, when I walk into a Starbucks anywhere around this country, half of the Starbucks if not more, is people with their laptops open, notes out, you know, briefcases out, morning, noon, and night, the gig economy. How does that impact the U.S. workforce and wages and all that kind of stuff? So we wanted to make sure that when we did this uh, that we weren't, you know, reflecting the emergence of a gig economy. And we looked at two things. One was multiple job holdings, which would obviously be a reflection of, of, of gig work. And it turns out that in terms of multiple job holders, as, as uh, you look at the CPS to, uh, to analyze that, um, we're at a low in terms of percentage of the labor force. So it's clearly not multiple job holding. The second thing, which I think is probably closer to what you're talking about, is self-employment. And, uh, and we found a similar thing. I mean, self-employment at the end of the day, as it turns out, is not those young people with laptops. It's old people like, mm. like me. Um, uh, and, well, and, why uh, are you looking at Tom? Th- this is really, really important. And I'm going to give a huge credit to Benjamin Tall of CIBC World Markets in Toronto, who was way out front on this. When you look at the data, and what's so charming about your work is you go right into the Fed data and use the data other people don't. How will the experts respond? 
respond to your simple mathematical ratio, which describes so much the inequalities in this nation. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be much issue with regard to the data itself. They're it not debating out, about that. Yeah, it comes out of the BLS. Is this, wait, wait, wait. Is this called the Elpert Ratio? Can we start there right now? <laughs> I don't think anyone with a ratio named after them called it that when they started. Oh, okay. <laughs> So what is, you know, when you think about the kind of the income inequality in this country, it, it really came into focus in the 2016 election, I would argue. What do you think a solution could be or should be to address that? Or is that just kind of how our economy is evolving? Well, so the, the series, which begins in 1990, shows a continuous decline with certain fits and starts, meaning during the enormous productivity boost of the 96 to 2003 period caused by the IT revolution, um, the, in, the index stopped declining. Uh, obviously, it spiked for a little time during the period of the household uh, housing and credit bubble uh, due to the you know, emergence of construction jobs and housing and so forth. But the general tenor of the index has been downward since, since 1990. And when you look at that, you have to ask yourself, you know, what right. was going on at the time? Well, what was going on, obviously, is, is a considerable amount of globalization. So it's one thing to just say it's globalization and walk away from the problem and say it can't be, can't be helped. The problem is, though, it also coincides with, you know, the, 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 the 30, 30 of the 40 years of the removal of uh, government from a, a serious role in the economy. You know, government spending has declined during that period as a percentage of GDP, and specifically government spending on infrastructure. And those are the well, job-creating sectors of government spending that actually, okay. you know, could have made a difference. we, we got to have you back for a lot more very quickly here. You trot out to any given presidential candidate, Republican, Democrat, whatever, you toss them your Cornell CPA U.S. private sector job quality index, and you say, "What's the plan to fix this? What's the solution?" Well, I, I was I was getting it. You know, I think most uh, certainly both parties find the notion of massive government infrastructure spending very attractive right now. The issue is how to pay for it, um, and that that's where the debate is. And it's become um, you know, a, a little bit of a do not go area for a lot of people because no one's willing to talk. I mean, you have look at the health care debate, yep. which is all being hung up over the issue of taxes. Um, th there are other ways, obviously, of paying for infrastructure spending. Uh, what we need is more job creation in uh, the higher wage, high hour categories. And that's really goods producing, yeah. right? That's what it comes down to. We're out of time. You got to come back and continue this. This is with a Cornell Law School. Uh, Dan Alpert and a, a great set of people looking at a, I can't convey folks the joy of how simple this guidance is through reams of Fed data, the Cornell CPA, U.S. Private Sector Job Quality Index. I threw it out on Twitter a couple days ago. I'll redux that here sometime through uh, the morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.